0: A very warm welcome to this final Koinonia Lecture of the academic year. This is a project between Westminster Abbey, St Paul's Cathedral and the Diocese of London, in which we've been engaging some of the great theological thinkers and speakers of our age on questions which are intriguing them at the moment. And we are absolutely delighted and honoured to be joined uh, this afternoon here in London this morning where Willie is by Professor Willie James Jennings, uh, who is a professor at Yale Divinity School and an ordained Baptist minister. Um, Amongst his many books, his commentary on the book of Acts, um, which is entitled Acts, a commentary, the revolution of the intimate, is very much loved by so many of us on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, Professor Jennings has also recently published a book that examines the problems of theological education within the Western systems, which is entitled After Whiteness, an Education in Belonging. This afternoon, Willie is going to speak to us about communion. You can write your questions in the comments box um, as the lecture proceeds, uh, and then I will pose them on your behalf um, once Professor Jennings has finished speaking to us. So without further ado, under the title of The Revolutionary Children of God, cultivating a faith that creates communion. Professor Willie Jennings, we're so grateful to have you with us.
1: I am so glad to be here. Thank you so much for this invitation. Glad I'd have this time with you today. Dear friends, please allow me to bring you warm greetings from Dean Gregory Sterling, the faculty, the staff, and the students of Yale Divinity School where I have the great joy of serving. It is good to be with you and to be considering the important matters that we will be talking about today, the revolutionary children of God, cultivating a faith that creates communion. Who are my people? This is an urgent question for Christians. It has always been urgent, but especially now. It is a question that we Christians have never been able to answer well. Indeed, it may be a question that cannot be answered by Christians in this moment. The reason this is such a difficult question for us is that it represents two projects of belonging existing side by side, one a challenge and the other a problem. It is always important to distinguish a challenge and a problem for Christians. A challenge is something that has been here from the beginning, from the first moment that we realized that we were following a God made specific, made discernible in the faith of a people called Israel and in the flesh of one of their own, Jesus of Nazareth. A problem is, theologically speaking, something that is of the moment, formed in a history, not of our own choosing or making, Form to demand from us a response of faith that sometimes must resist that which has been presented as faith. So there is a challenge of belonging, and there is a problem of belonging. We see the challenge of belonging in that famous scene that moves from Acts 1 to Acts 2. In Acts 1, in the presence of the resurrected Jesus, who had risen with power in his hands, the disciples asked for power. They asked, Lord, is this the time when you restore the kingdom of Israel? They wanted power over their oppressors, power over people, power for self-determination. So they asked what I call the proto-nationalist question that aims them as a people toward independence. Toward self-sufficiency and sovereignty. Jesus responds to them with the promise of power. In Acts 2, they get power, but the power that Jesus gives through the spirit is something very different. Jesus's answer was not power over people, but power for people. That is God's own desire for people. They speak in the languages of others. And as my former colleague, the late, great Laiman Sani would say, they speak in the mother tongues, the language of the intimate spaces, the language that mothers speak to their children, and children learn the language inside that intimate womb. Uh, that's, it suggests deep connection and knowledge. Acts 2 turns Jewish followers of Jesus in a different direction that is implied by the speaking of tongues. To learn a language. To learn a language speaks of a commitment to listen and learn of a people and a place. And if learning that language will bring fluency, then it will also speak of a desire to be with the people who speak that language and even love those people as you love that language and love the places and ways of life out of which language always emerges. The work of the Spirit in this regard aims us not at controlling people, but at joining people. Tongues speak of what I call outrageously a good assimilation, not absorption not conquest, but joining. The unfolding of my life and our lives in and with the lives of others. The languages the disciples speak by the spirit show an inside turned outward. A diaspora community turned out toward its neighbors and those neighbors are not all nice, nor friendly, nor sites of safety. That turn outward will not only be toward Gentiles, but will include we Gentiles turning outward. This shared project of turning outward is captured powerfully in that famed text in Ephesians 2.14. For he is our peace in his flesh. He has made both Jew and Gentile into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. We who follow Jesus have been brought by him through the spirit into a project of forming life together, creating a reality of belonging that overcomes every social and economic division, overcomes every practice of violence and oppression and every commitment to war. The challenge of belonging is not simply to end hostility but the active recreating, the active recreating of unprecedented life together and a shared designing of new identity flowing out of that shared life. This is the project that we as Christians should inhabit precisely because we inhabit the story of the spirit deeply embedded in the story of Jesus of Nazareth, deeply embedded in the story of Israel. But too many Christians are unclear on the story we inhabit, and therefore they are unclear on the project of belonging that we are being drawn into by the Spirit. This is the continuing challenge. The unfinished business of Christian belonging, of forming a people, and forming intellectuals through our yielding to the spirit who can answer that question. Who are my people? To answer it in new and stunning ways. You see, the intellectual life for the Christian is embedded in this project. Yet it is a project now entangled, that's the word we want, now entangled in a different project of peoplehood, national peoplehood. This is the problem of belonging, the problem of belonging bound to nationalist existence. From the very beginning of modern colonialism, peoples were forced by the colonial powers down a path to confront a choice, nation or genocide. Either enter a nation if you can or face annihilation. Either enter national existence if you can and form your people into a nation or face annihilation. It was the choice forced on indigenous peoples in every colonial theater by colonial settlers who claimed their lands and turned it and them into property. Those colonial settlers did not see the land as many indigenous people saw it as alive, animate, and communicative. They did not see it through a logic of belonging. That is, they did not see it as woven into the very lives of native peoples. They did not see it as a fundamental, irreplaceable, irreplaceable part of how one understands and identifies oneself. They did not see it as making claim on us and thereby opening the possibility of a shared sense of belonging for any who stepped on that land. The colonial settlers saw the land as property that could and should and would become private. Property that one may grow a deep attachment, even form a loving connection that will become a matter of belonging after you own it. And they forced indigenous peoples to see the land and think the land and speak the land through a private property vision of ownership and attachment. This meant that the land should be seen first in terms of its potential and thereby seen as a site for improvement, and secondly, as commodifiable, that is, turned into segments and sold. And third, the land should be seen as transferable, as sellable segments. Indigenous peoples, to stay in any way connected to the land, would have to see the land in these ways and see themselves as owners of the land, having the rights to the land. Indigenous peoples had to not only see the land as property, but had to articulate land in themselves through ideas of ownership that would be the basis for seeing themselves as a nation and the basis for articulating their sense of belonging. The goal of collective life that formed with nationalist vision was to create people who were self-determined, free, and in possession of their place, their land. And from that place, they would enter the market, ready to participate in the possibilities for growth. This is the path of assimilation toward the realization of your independence your autonomy and your self-possession through which you as an individual and as a people are poised to expand your world. This is collective life inside a world transformed into property and crafted through the power of whiteness. I have articulated whiteness in my work against the simple collapse of its reality onto the bodies of people of European descent who self-identify as white people. Whiteness is not phenotype or biology. Whiteness is a way of being in the world, a way of seeing the world, and a way of being recognized in the world all at the same time. Whiteness is a way of measuring and evaluating people And whiteness is having the power, having the power to organize the world by that evaluation. And we are inside nationalist vision organized through whiteness. Whiteness taught us that we should belong to nations and collectivities that function like nations, whether they be races or religions or corporations, or nations within nations and that pedagogy (laughs) stuck. These are unwanted visions of gathered life that we have been taught to inhabit and therefore to want. We internalized that project of belonging. What does it mean my friends to be entangled in this project. It means many things, but at the heart, it means that we who are Christian have entered a struggle over a vision of gathered life. And so that question I began with is crucial. Who are my people? We answer this question through a fundamental work. Of subversion. If we are entangled in nationalist projects of belonging, then those projects of belonging must be subverted for the sake of gathered life in God. A poem for us entitled Building New Babel. Let's try this again, but now with noise, a cacophony of voices that none of us can control. We need that destroying God who made all of this happen, threw away our plans and sat down in our midst. You, God, speak to each of us. We can now only speak through you to one another and understand what and how to build with what stone, which wood, whose cloth, whose hand, which eye, Whose feet, which arm, every mind, each hope climbing higher, nothing will be wasted. No one will be thrown away. Then we will say to one, as one, we have built together only what you wanted, what you desired to see, what we desired to see you in your home. How do we subvert projects of belonging? By being a different kind of citizen within them. If we are citizens, citizens of nations, then we must become what I call desperate citizens. I have suggested the idea of the desperate citizen and desperate citizenship, reflecting on the latter chapters of the book of Acts, where Paul is struggling to survive violence aimed at his body. Paul caught between the attempts of his enemies to kill him and the operations of the Roman state, the Roman Empire, pressed his Roman citizenship to its limits in order to live another day. The desperate citizen is one who does not take citizenship lightly, but presses it to its absolute limits. Citizenship pressed to its absolute limits, pressed to the breaking point. Yet desperate citizenship aims for even more than visibility and justice. It seeks to make visible a new kind of belonging. In a sense, to collapse citizenship in claiming life for those who, in the words of the great mystic and theologian Howard Thurman, have their backs against the wall. Desperate citizenship means lives unfolding inside one another. This is shared life that refuses, it refuses borders and boundaries and life within the line that is the property line and the borderline. You see nationalist existence places people inside borders and borders inside people, always in alien presence. Yet few of us will confess aloud the artificiality of borders because of the profound operation of the line. Lines create the compelling illusion that separation exists where it does not. The desperate citizen plays against that illusion by creating connection where it was not thought possible. Where it was not thought possible. Like Jewish and Gentile disciples speaking the mother tongues of others, anticipating divine desire, The beginning of a life together. So what I'm suggesting here is a work of belonging born of the Spirit that crumbles the modern project of belonging from within by turning us outward. That outward turn is rooted in the life of Jesus that embodies the desire of God to form us into the children of God. And here we must recall that fabulous text from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. This text suggests to us that he gave to all who would turn to him a new beginning with a new kind of power. Indeed, it was the power, it is the power of Pentecost, the power to become the children of God the children of God. These are words that have echoed down through the centuries, spoken in fact by many religions, yet rarely heard in their power. And in our time, we have allowed them to become banal through the kind of Christianity that we inherited, one easily subsumed in nationalist visions of belonging. But these words, mean everything. The children of God, they speak of a beginning claimed by God. They tell us of a holy theft, a glorious taking back of our lives from the storytellers, both national and local, both cultural and familial, who told us, and yet seek to tell us who we are, who told us how we should be in the world, who told us what our destiny should be, who told us who we belong to. God took us back from them. God claims us before any family, before the designs or decisions or plans of parents or kin, before the dictates of a country or a people. God brings us our beginnings. We begin in God. This is, of course, what baptism was supposed to teach us. This is what the life of faith was supposed to make clear to us, that our existence is not arbitrary, that our difference is not inconsequential, that our voice is not random, and that our way of seeing and being is not common. We were not born to fulfill the needs of a corporation or a nation or an army. We were not born to be consumers or producers of goods and services. We were born to form a revolutionary life together with God and with one another where justice is our currency and peace is our way of life so that question that question who are my people for the Christian for the Christian that question becomes a lifelong prayer grounded in yielding to the Spirit of God who shows us at every moment those with whom we must enter the work of belonging. I began by saying this question, where my people, may be a question that we Christians cannot answer because our lives as they now exist, especially in the Western world, have been configured against Pentecost and toward the sustaining of projects of belonging that aim at conquest and or segregation. The task for us, the task for us, my friends, is to form people who live against the nation, but for belonging. Thank you very much. Let me start right there so we can have some time for questions and answers. Thank you, Willie, so much for that extraordinarily
0: rich vision of what, not just what the church can be, but what the world can be in in Christ, living the life of the resurrection together. Um, friends, you're welcome to write your comments, your questions, and I will pose them to Willie on your behalf. But whilst you're, you're doing that, whilst you're thinking, um I, I I'm going to kick us off, um, if I may, Willie, with um yeah. with a question which is um really relating to the the kind of mentality shifts you're setting before us. Um the the need for such a profound renewal in in not just what we think but in how we think and how our mind relates to our heart. Um and it, it's really about this this sort of project of refusal. Um and I, I wonder if I could tempt you to talk about what you think are the theological doctrinal problems in the church at the moment, which work against this kind of vision?
1: This is a great question. So I think, I think we're looking at three fundamental problems here. Uh, the first, theologically speaking, is that most Christians are still caught in what is known as it's a supersessionist logic, mm. which is to say um, they have been taught that the church has superseded, replaced Israel as the people of God. And so the the life of the church is aimed forward, away from Israel, mm. forward, away from Jewish people into its own reality. Mm. And so we, we continue in that trajectory. And what that means is that our ecclesiologies lack that fundamental character of joining that should have shaped and should yet shape the way Christians understand their their life. So now what does that mean? It means that most Christians never got the memo that they are inside someone else's story. Yeah, yeah. And that story is the story of the people of Israel, that they are inside someone else's hope, someone else's dreams, And the opening of that through the body of one of their own, which meant that the very vision of our life as Christians is not as hosts that we're welcoming people into us, but as guests that we have entered into the lives of another with the call to love, the call to humility, and the call to joining, the call to opening ourselves unfolding our lives inside the lives of others. Now, that that vision is missing. It's kind of like an enzyme missing from the body politic, from the body ecclesial. And that very reality has to be restored. That's a This is a crucial matter. Now, why this becomes so important for us is that it means that we have not been cultivated in a practice of how to open ourselves to others. And of course, This is um, magnified when we come to the modern colonial moment where so many indigenous peoples were presented a Christianity that forced them to adapt, forced them to change, forced them to be malleable, forced them to, in a sense, strip away their cultural reality to enter something else rather than a Christianity that presented itself as people who wished to join wish to become malleable, wish to open themselves up, wish to transform themselves, wish to become, in a sense, fundamentally expand their identity. And so that then means for us that we are yet to grasp an ecclesial center for our very lives. And that ecclesial center is the work of joining and gathering. But but there's another matter that's at heart doctrinally for us. And that has to do with the doctrine of the spirit. And here we have not, I think, learned the important lesson from the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, (laughs) when the spirit comes, here is the fundamental sign, my dear brother, that we we see in the book of Acts, to know that the spirit is present. The spirit is always pressing people to do what they don't wanna do. very so true <laughs> i see people to do what they don't want to do and the problem they don't want to do is to go and be with people who they prefer not to be with And i love that wonderful story of ananias when um uh, uh, god says to him go to go to this man named saul and he says to the angel I don't know if you've heard, but rumor has it this man is a killer. <laughs> you might want <laughs> yeah. to check with God. Is that actually what we was <laughs> the, the comedy of that of that moment? Is yeah. But this this is a part of what we're facing that we that the resistance to what the Spirit is doing has become a fundamental reality for so many Christians because what the Spirit is doing is creating communion. And to create communion means boundary crossing. Mm. It means border crossing, boundary crossing culturally, socially, border crossing in terms of empire and nation and tribe. That, that, That transgressive work is how we as Gentiles enter. The famous words of Peter, when he stands there with Cornelius, his opening comments. You know that we're not supposed to be together. But God has told me that I have to be here. So somebody, Mm -hmm. I love that question. Somebody tell me, why am I here? (laughs) 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 The disciple disciple of Jesus asking, why am I here? (laughs) (laughs) What's this all about? Yeah, but I I think we, we have to start with those two matters as crucial doctrinal matters that have to be rethought. ecclesiology and the actual character of understanding the working of the spirit Mm -hmm. at the sight of the body
0: thank you so much i mean sometimes the our our language just isn't rich enough is it even the language of solidarity is that a rich enough language to get us to the place we need to be i wonder because solidarity (laughs) still somehow implies that I'm here and you're there, and I'm going to stand in solidarity with you. Yes. I'm, I'm not even sure that language is rich enough.
1: No, I, I think you're right. We we need we actually need stories that 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 draws into the, the the full dynamic and the richer reality of what it means to have lives enfolded into one another. Yeah. The, the, where where we spring off from, where we lift off from to start to do this, is we lift off from the 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 Lord suffer. This is yeah. my body. This is my blood. Put it inside you. Yeah. And we lift off from that. And then we 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 have to then think, what does it mean to now have that level of intimacy? To then think our lives together from. Yes. And yeah. that, that that is ahead of us. That yeah. is the spirit calling us to where we are not. And yes. that's the challenge for us, isn't it? Because yeah. That's At the, the gift still the day, to be received, yeah. right? At the end of the day, we we are we are we are in a sense chasing where the spirit is pulling us. The spirit tells us, "Come, come, come here," yeah. and yeah. we are slowly, sometimes reluctantly, dragging our feet,
0: <laughs> r- r- wriggling, kicking, and screaming. So we we've got a couple of other churches here, and fr- uh, sorry, a couple of other questions here. And friends, do please keep on um, sending your your questions in. Uh, Andrew Mumby, a, a priest in South London, says, thanks so much, Professor. Amazing, challenging, inspiring. So many questions. The question is, the first question is this, how does the church listen to the spirits about belonging? How does that work at the macro level versus the
1: micro level? That's a great question. So I, when, I, when I go to churches, I always say the first thing a church has to do as a community is ask itself one fundamental question. Who is the Spirit telling us as a church that we should connect to, that we should join? And to make that a matter, not only of prayer and discernment, but conversation. And here's the thing I know, my dear brother, here's the thing. Whenever I have said this to churches, I have never gotten by email, text, phone call, response. We don't know who that is. People almost automatically know the very people that they avoid daily, (laughs) individually or as a church. And so what we have to recognize is that the Spirit is pressing us often to go to the very people we have learned not to see, learned to avoid, learned to, to make a detour around on a daily, weekly basis. So th- that's what we begin to 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 understand what the Spirit is doing. And as I said, not only collectively, but individually. I'll tell you a quick story to respond to this wonderful question. I, a dear pastor I met many years ago, and he lived in a, he passed in an African-American church. But in order to get to his church, he passed at least two different immigrant communities to get to his church. And he passed... You know, uh, a white community made up of kind of um, bohemian kind of hipsters. Uh, he passed them every day to get to his church. And he told me every day as he's driving to his church, the spirit would say to him, those are your people. Those are your people. Those are your people. And he he kept ignoring that. He kept ignoring <laughs> no No, uh, but every day, those are your people. Those are your people. Those are your people. And he, he, he would say, all time, and say, well, they're not my people. And the spirit of God would say, those are your people. And so what he realized is that as a church, even though they were a, a community inside of a reality of oppression, inside a reality of anti-blackness, yet they were yet being called to open themselves up to their neighbors. And he was the one who was sensing that God was saying to him, those are your people. Now, this is not a competition, it's an <laughs> expansion. The, the, they are all your people. Hmm. And the the thing for so many churches, and here's where listening to the spirit begins, is to stop resisting the spirit. I have been a theologian for decades, and here's what I understand: to know what the spirit is willing has never been the problem for the church. Never, in the history of the church. The problem for the church has always been resisting what the spirit is saying.
0: One of the, um, one of the lessons that, that it's clear we have to learn, not least in the West, um, is um, this mentality shift that perhaps comes from listening to indigenous people. And I wonder if you can say a little bit about the sort of areas you think indigenous people might have to teach us. I mean, you've already alluded to and spoke a bit about the relationship with the land, a sense of being enfolded in creation as part of creation rather than over it. I wonder if you could just expand on that a bit. Other insights that we that we particularly need to learn from the indigenous world.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for that question. And there are many. You are alluding to a few, but I think it begins, it begins with recognizing, as so many indigenous peoples recognize, that the Christianity that was given to them carried some deep wounds. Wound number one, and in many ways, this comes from the great, the great Native American theologian and religious scholar, Vine Deloria Jr., who said that when the missionaries came, when the colonial missionaries came, They presented to indigenous peoples a God that was far more concerned with time than with space. And they presented to indigenous peoples a Christianity that had a temporal vision of salvation, the time of salvation, but not a spatial vision of salvation, the space of salvation. What does salvation look like? on the ground, in the ground, with the dirt. And that begins the fundamental problems that we are inside of. So many of us as Christians, we live what I say is a displaced reality as Christianity. That is to say, our discipleship, our life of faith, in terms of where we are, is inconsequential. We can be that Christian. anywhere in the world, because one place is exactly the same as another place for us. And so the, the, the reality of life in the dirt, the reality of life connected to land and place, and of understanding a reality of connectivity that then opens up a reality of belonging, is missing for so many Christians. As many indigenous scholars have said, Your sense of belonging, your sense of of relationality that is, is dependent upon your sense of connectivity. That is to say, if, if there is no deep, rich sense of connectivity to a place and to one another through a place, then the level of relationality that we operate in will be shallow and hollow. So for example, if I don't understand that we share the same water source, if I don't understand that the the foods that we eat and the air that we breathe is a shared reality, and therefore it it speaks to me of not only some with moral density but a kind of ethical direction of how I should behave as though I were with you on a boat out at sea. (laughs) I had one end, and you at the other end. If I don't understand that there is a level of connectivity, then my relationality with you is optional. I can take you or leave you, because, in point of fact, I don't need you. But if, in fact, I do not only need you, but I am deeply con- we are deeply connected in a place, then that opens up a richness and a depth to what my relating will be. I will relate, first of all, in ways that honor our connection to this land and honor our the, the sources of life that we draw from this land together. And I will then think of our relationship moving forward in ways that constantly nurture and show an awareness of that connectivity. But then there's a second important insight which I say a third important insight that flows from so many indigenous scholars today as, as they are trying to think through the the colonial wound and the problems of the christianity given to them and that is there is no sense of the history of a place and therefore no sense of it being alive animate and communicative and This is always very difficult for many of us to understand those of us who've been raised in the Western world and been told to pay no attention to indigenous peoples. And that is, we look at the world, we look at the ground, we look at the earth as an object, as private property, as just dirt. And we don't understand that there is a semiotic reality to it; that there is that there is a reality of of community and communication. That the world itself, in its specific places, says to us, speaks to us. It doesn't speak to us as I'm speaking to you now, but in the in the words of the anthropologist Eduardo Quan, um, it thinks through us that. And that reality of connectivity, that reality of a world that we are in relation with is missing from so many Christians. What does that then mean? It means that we continue in tragic ways in harmful extractive practices. There is one fundamental principle among many indigenous peoples that it will be good for us to consider carefully. And it is, as uh, the great Native American religious scholar, Edward Tink Tinker um, talks about, it's the idea of balance. For so many Indigenous peoples, whatever they would take from the creation, whatever they would take from the land, from animals, they would return something, that there was a reality of reciprocity, one of my favorite stories often told among indigenous peoples is that at the beginning of hunting season or fishing season or gathering season, the, the elders of the people will go to the elders of the animals. How they know the elders, I'm not sure, but let's stick with the story. They would go to the elders of the animals, and they would ask permission to hunt them, ask permission to eat them. With these promises, these promises, dear pastor. Promise number one, we'll take only what we need. Number two, nothing will be wasted. And number three, you will never see your kin, dear animal, laying on the ground, unused, disrespected. That is to say, we will honor the sacrifice you make for us to live, and we will return. We will give back. Now, as I've often said to many people, given the way we eat today, given the way we treat food, I would dare say that most of the animals that we eat would say to us, if we had that ritual, you may not eat me. <laughs> because all those all those promises have been violated so there are many other things that we should learn but I think one of the most important things we need to learn is to actually talk to indigenous peoples
0: yeah absolutely this is not just a mentality shift is it as if this project could be achieved in our brains alone this is a it's a practice shift it's a whole way of life that needs to be sort of reshaped by the spirits absolutely I just want to take you I just want to take you back, if if I may, to get us into the next question. To that that lovely image you gave us earlier um, of the African American pastor as he's driving past the, these hipsters, um, and the spirit saying, "You know, those are my people. They're your people too." Um, in in the Church of England, we 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 have this strange um, inheritance of a parish system that is guaranteed by law, so that. It used to be said, and still is sometimes now, said that every blade of grass in this country is within a geographical parish. So there's a sense of, if, 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 if you're feeling particularly positive about life, the world, and everything, there's a sense in which everyone belongs to a parish. And um, of course, that history, that contemporary practice, comes with real negatives as well as real positives. Uh, but I, I say that because I'd, I'd like to hear you Um, speak to us um, about this question from somebody which has just come up which is about this dynamic between belonging versus national existence Um, and in particular perhaps how that might relate to established churches like the Church of England which are uh, for better or for worse legally bound up in complex ways uh, historic and contemporary with the nation-state. I mean, how 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 do we navigate this belonging versus national existence
1: dynamic? That's a beautiful question, and it's and it's so present everywhere, where the nationalist project was intertwined, entangled with Christian belonging. Well, we we work at it by remembering the fundamental the fundamental truth that we are both lovers. Of the people we um, are a part of, and at the same moment, traitors. Lovers and traitors. We're lovers because we love people. We're traitors because we love people. <laughs> and so what that means is that in the daily practice of a church, in the daily practice of a community and its leadership, as it reaches out to people, comes to unfold its own life with them and, and allow their, own lives, their lives to unfold with them and inside of one another as uh, identities continue to expand then we we press against the limits of border we press against the dictates of nation the the trajectories of how we will interact because we're interacting in this way we we create friends where enemies are being created we create connection where people are saying You may not travel, you may not go there, you may not engage them, but we're we're doing something else. We are something else is is growing right at the place where something is being prohibited. And so how we negotiate it is that we allow the spirit to continue to unfold in and through us. Pentecost. That and we let's come back to that Pentecost story. So these Jews from other parts of the world see these Galileans speaking, speaking the intimate reality of their language. And they, the, the pastor says they are in shock and awe. How, how is it, not just that they know their language, but they know the way I speak when I'm with my mother, when, I'm with, when we are in our safest place, it's because something is being opened up, something is being transgressed. So the way we, we, we work this is we remember that we are always, we are always subversives, but it's a subversion that cannot easily be captured. It, it resists the desire of the nation to enfold life into itself because inside of the nation, are these Christians who are doing a different enfolding that in in a sense is crumbling their project from within. But at the same time, establishing a reality of belonging that every nation, if it wants to exist in life and thriving life, ought to pay attention to. So we begin with the recognition that we are doing the work of building deep connection that then allows the possibility of belonging. And as I said recently in some lectures I gave, that what we're doing is we're establishing a reality of dwelling, of an, of habitation, of life together, that at the end of the day, every nation would want, but every nation would fear. Why would it fear it? Because we have these people together who we're not sure at the end of the day about their ultimate allegiance, and that's exactly what a Christian is, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. The um, what what would it be to recast the nation state as under underpinned by the principle of life together, not life without the other? I mean, that's so often uh, in practice how it how it shakes down, isn't it? One of the things and, and- I find. No, one, find, one of the things I find so fascinating about what you've just said is that that what w- what you described is a wisdom that we see in Scripture. It's a wisdom that we see in the Old Testament, in that in that emerging relationship between the children of Israel and you know the nations. In a sense, there is this dynamic going on even there about perhaps especially there uh, about mm. what faithfulness in groups might look like. Um, gosh, it's got so overlaid. Now, we've got two other questions which I really want to get through. um, So forgive me. Um, The next question, John Carlson, the question is this. The spirit works in the lives of everyone, those who do listen, those who resist it, and those who don't recognize its presence. So his question is, how do we help people to recognize what the spirit wants them to do?
1: That's a great question. So what we do is we, as we say, it's a... We 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 ask people to look at me, <laughs> you know. And um, the 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 importance of witness is crucial here. So that witness is not presenting to people someone who has done it all right, someone who has clearly uh, become the exemplar of how to actually do it perfectly. But witness means we show someone who is in the beautiful struggle of trying to do it and in that struggle is yielding to the spirit. And and by so doing, offers witness in the richest sense of the word to those who may not even recognize that the spirit is in a sense, tapping them on the shoulder. And here's what's so important about witness as we know, for someone to experience it, to see it, to sense it, to watch it is at that very moment, to also have the spirit going like this to them, come, come. You see how she is struggling to connect with you. See how she's struggling to open herself. This is what I'm calling you to. And that's that's always the challenge. We, In many ways, we can't talk people into yielding to the spirit. We have to give witness through our talking that we are trying to yield to the spirit. And in that way, we, we in in a sense, encircle them in in the spirit's sound, even as we are trying to listen carefully. Thank you
0: very much indeed. We've got one final question from Sean. Uh, I'll read it out. To what extent is there a problem with belonging as a binary concept? And does this overlook the fluidity of those who are
1: discovering and exploring faith? That's an interesting question. I wouldn't say it's a binary concept. Belonging does mean belonging does mean that I am opening myself to others and inviting others to open themselves to me. It does mean that I'm entering to a shared project, not only of life together, but of identity. So the fluidity that the, the 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 person who's asking this question is looking for is precisely found is precisely found in the reciprocity, the give and take of life together. But it, it is a fluidity that we can't control, isn't it? I mean, it, it's one in which if I am opening myself to others, then I am not sure what the end will be. I mean, so take Acts eleven in, in relation to this fine question. So in Acts ten we have the incredible event of we coming into the story that is we gentiles. In Acts eleven that Peter returns to um, the uh, the disciples in Jerusalem and, and remember in Acts eleven they are furious with him and the question that they ask why did you go among and why did you go among the Gentiles? Let's pay attention, eat, eat with the Gentiles, which meant that you violated kosher that you that you took food into yourself or, it, or at least you're in the presence of it in ways that are problematic and Peter's response was I didn't want to do this but God made me do this and then and then Peter recounted what God was doing and then there's this wonderful moment in that passage where it says and they were silent it's almost as though something came to an end. It's like the the the, like a movement in a in a in a a musical piece where one part comes to the end, then the conductor raises her hands and prepares for the second part, and then they said, then the pastor says, then they rejoiced, because God was doing this new thing with Gentiles, and so and the end of it, where it would lead, no one knew. This is precisely. In, from my, in my mind, the best way to understand fluidity, that it's opening us to new possibilities that we cannot control. but it does require that we give up control. It does require that we enter into the unfolding. And the unfolding is not just two. Of course, the unfolding is not just Jew and Gentile. because Gentile is multiple and even Jew is multiple in the book of Acts and in the New Testament. Multiple peoples being enfolded in one another, and then the unfolding continues. There was a student I had many years ago, and I was sharing some of this, and he he said, um, Dr. Jennings, what you're saying to me is that I should learn, you know, basically learn the lesson, the the languages of the people in my church, get to know each of their cultures. Then he said, Dr. Jennings, I'm going to a church that has at least 60 or 70 different um, nationalities, different tongues, different languages. And so, and so then he said, so which ones should I learn, Dr. Jennings? I think he was trying to stop me. And I said to him, you, you should learn them all. And then he said to me, but that would take forever. And I said, exactly, exactly. And then I said to him, can you imagine what kind of witness You would be offering, and your church would be offering. If as a part of the life of that church, it constantly was seeking to learn the languages and the cultural ways of all its people. And imagine the children who would be raised in such a church, who would see this as a part of their life, the constant opening myself and learning the languages of others. So by me, by no means is this a binary, and by every means. It is a fluidity that opens us to a lifetime of beautiful work together.
0: Well, incredibly, in Yale, it is only nine o'clock in the morning, and of course, in the second book of in the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, just after the great gift of tongues, it was only it's only nine o'clock in the morning. How can this be? Uh, Willie, you have just given us so much, um, friends? Um, This afternoon, as it is here in London, this morning in the US, we've seen Uh, Just snapshots of so much of what Willie is so rightly famed and loved for. You've been for us mystical, imaginative, faithful, visionary, prophetic, inspiring, and we are hugely in your debt. Thank you so much for giving us this hour together and the knowledge that we are in communion with each other as we go out now back to our respective places of worship and and work to be together in, in the risen body of Christ. Friends, um, these Koinonia Lectures now break for the summer. A new programme will be announced um, in the middle of the summer. um, And that will be principally an online programme, but with the occasional in-person event as well. So thank you for joining us this year. And we look forward very much to seeing you in person and online in the new academic year. But just to close, renewed and very sincere thanks to Professor Willie James Jennings. Thank you, Willie. Glad to be here
1: with you.